Hi there, and welcome to Vet Talk. Um, I'm excited you're joining us. Today we are continuing on our discussion about diversity and inclusion and you know, maybe some of the issues that we have in veterinary medicine. And so I'm excited that Dr. Katherine Fogelberg has joined the conversation. Um, she's going to share um, with us today some of her experiences as an Asian American woman in veterinary medicine. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, some ideas for what are some other things we can do to improve diversity and inclusion in our profession. So um, I hope you will enjoy and find this to be helpful and meaningful for you. Hi, and welcome to Vet Talk. I'm uh, really excited uh, to be continuing our sort of series that we've been we've been doing, talking about diversity and inclusion. And so I'm I'm really excited. I have on the phone with me Dr. Catherine Fogelberg, um, and she has agreed to come and talk about some of her experiences um, as an Asian American veterinarian. And then hopefully we'll we'll have some time to talk a little bit about um, some of the ideas we've discussed about you know, what, what can we do to improve diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine? So, Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Bobby, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Um, I do talk really fast, so I apologize if I need to slow down. Well, then you're on pace with me because that is like the <laughs> feedback I always get. Um, but yeah. we've had conversations before, and I've maybe it's because that's also my pace. I've never had a problem with that. But whatever. I think people can probably slow this down when they listen to it, right? That's like a cool that's thing fair. that you could do. So if you're finding that we're talking too fast, because I tend to talk faster when the other person's talking fast too. Like if my sisters and I get together, watch out. <laughs> but um, well, th thank you so much, Catherine, for being here. Um, I'm, I'm really excited that you agreed to come and talk about some things. And, and so... You know, I think a big part of having these discussions about diversity and inclusion comes down to just people telling stories, you know, just sharing their experiences. And so I'm hoping that we can start, um, maybe you can share just a little bit of your background, um, you know, whatever whatever feels relevant to you, um, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I, I think the first thing that's probably relevant to the conversation is um, I was actually born in South Korea and I was adopted when I was about a year old by a Caucasian couple, a, an American Caucasian couple. Um, so I was raised in the United States. So I really consider myself an American. Um, I don't look American from the outside, but I am American. Um, and so that's complicated my life in many ways because I didn't have a whole lot of connection to my ethnic roots. My parents weren't, um, right. they just weren't willing to kind of give me that connection. And I was adopted in the seventies. So that probably had something to do with it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of get some, you know, the issues kind of start with my name because people assume that it's my married name and then they find out that it's my maiden name and then they're confused about why I'm a Fogelberg and not something that sounds more Asian. Um, and so that often is sort of a, a flashpoint for conversations to begin with. Um, and then the second thing is that I actually ended up going to vet school a little bit later in life. So I was about 10 years older than my classmates when I went to vet school. Um, I had an, uh, a military experience, so I spent 10 years in the military prior to going to vet school. Um, and so not only did I not look like everybody else, but I also had a sort of different experience coming into school. So I think that was, you know, an issue. Um, and it wasn't ever anything that I really thought about very much until I got there and looked around. I went to Texas A&M and I looked around and there was literally one other person in the classroom who sort of looked like me. Um, and we actually ended up striking up a pretty close friendship throughout vet school, but it, it was just sort of a strange place. And then I already felt a little bit insecure about being in vet school because it had taken me a couple times to get in and I felt like maybe I wasn't smart enough and 
Um, I was like, well, they only let me in because I was Asian, you know? Oh, so, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it was kind of one of those situations. Um, but obviously I made it through vet school and I did. Right. Fine, but it's still At the end, kind yeah. of one of those things that I think a lot of people don't carry with them when they go to vet school and they right. don't really think about, well, did I only get in because I check an ethnicity box or a race yeah. box or, or something like that? Yeah. Well, and then, you know, being, you know, it, a good bit, you know, a decade older than, you know, your, your classmates, you know, that in and of itself is going to have, you know, an impact. It's maybe even a little harder to relate to some of those people because they've maybe just gone through school and they've never not been a student. And here you are, you've had life experiences and right. a very different perspective. I know, um, you know, we had, we had a good number of, you know, either second career or people who are a little bit older and it's actually, I, I was one of those that went straight through, but like my study group, um, neither, there were three of us for the most part, um, four um, in general, but three of us that like also hung out socially and they were both, older than me, um, you know, by like (laughs) seven to 10 years. Um, that's, I guess, just sort of who I gravitated toward for whatever reason. My grandma (laughs) would say it's because I'm an old soul, but, um, but you know, I I can, I can imagine, you know, one of those things being, you know, potentially alienating, like you said, looking different from your classmate and then being at a different age, um, and then combining those, uh, I can imagine. And then the insecurity of like, uh, you know, did I only get in because like you said, you, you checked a box and right. that's gotta be, well, that's gotta be frustrating. And then I don't know how familiar you are with Texas or college station in particular, but college station is, it's a very white town. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, Texas A&M is a great school. I got a great education, but it's definitely not as welcoming to folks who are different. And that means people of color as well as LGBTQ or, yeah. you know, liberals in was general. That, was um, that true? I, so I know a little bit about the area. I've been to College Station a couple of times, but I've also been to like other areas where it sort of felt like that. But the university itself felt a little bit more like, okay, outs, if you leave college, you know, campus grounds, you're you're probably not going to be in, in the most welcoming environment. But when you were on campus, it was a little different. Did you feel that or did you say that seeped into campus life as well? No, I definitely think that seeped into campus yeah. life as well. And again, I wasn't an undergraduate at Texas right. A&M, so I wasn't as familiar with all of this sort of Aggie pride, Aggie yeah. stuff. I honestly view it as a little bit as a cult, you know, right. <laughs> yep. there's all these traditions, which is sure. great. It gives people an opportunity to kind of feel like they belong and find a spot. Um but the vet school, as you may know, is like literally across the tracks from the main campus. So right. I didn't spend a whole lot of time on yeah. the main campus. But certainly, um, certainly the few times I made my way across the tracks to go to main campus for whatever reason, which was probably less than a handful of times during my time there, uh, I, I didn't feel particularly welcomed. Um, and it wasn't anything that was necessarily overt. I did mm-hmm. have a few people who would make comments or give me looks or say things, but it was it was just sort of a, a general sense that I, I definitely didn't belong there. Yeah. Um, and I talked to a couple of my classmates who, and I made a mistake, I had two Asian classmates, um, one of whom I became friends with and one I just remained acquaintances with. But mm-hmm. I talked to them on several occasions and I talked to the four black classmates that I had during the time and we all kind of felt the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and particularly, unfortunately, for the black students in my class, they definitely felt it. Just a general a sense more. of unease. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. what about like within your vet school training? Like, did you feel, you know, did you make forge friendships with other people in the class or did you always feel like a bit of an outsider? 
No, you know, I did. I, I did find a group of three amazing young ladies, one of whom was actually older than me. She transferred into our program from Mississippi in our second year. And we mm-hmm. all kind of connected and formed a group and ended up, I did make, I did make really good friends when I was going through vet school. Um, those three in particular. Um, but I actually followed the, what was called the alternative track at Texas A&M at the time. So I was able to put together uh, a group of externships for four months that were off campus because I was pursuing areas that they couldn't provide to me training on campus in. Um, And so I made it so that I was off campus for the last four months of class. And I basically said, I'm not coming back for graduation. And they were like, you better come back or we're going to hunt you down. So, (laughs) you know, it was nice to have some people who cared enough to have me there. And so I did go back for graduation, but it was the first time I was back on campus. Um, and I, and I didn't, I wasn't unhappy to see the place in my rear view mirror. And it's interesting because I was my last couple of years in practice, I was just sort of doing um, relief work one day a week for a clinic here in in Texas and really loved the people there. Um, but one of the veterinarians and I were having a conversation one day and she was in the surgery seat, which was next door in my office. And I don't know how we got into the topic, but the topic of college station came up and she was like, Oh man, I loved college station. It was fantastic. I would totally retire there and raise a family there. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I, that wouldn't be for me. And she's like, really? I thought it was so great. I'm like, well, you're white. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean it to come out that way. And I, it just sort of popped out. Just fell right out. Yeah. Like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. And she just kind of paused for a second. And she was like, you know what? You're right. I never oh, really wow. thought about that, but I think you're right. And so it was oh, nice that's to awesome. know that she was, yeah, she was like, she took a moment to kind of think about yeah. it and respond to me in a very positive way. But I do think that happens huh. a lot sometimes. No, people. I mean, it is, but I, I also think that's, this, I don't know how you feel, but I'm feeling like this current moment in our country is people are wanting to have more conversations and white people maybe in particular are are starting to think like, you know, maybe I've taken a lot of my perspectives for granted and, you know, cause it's really easy for people to, like, we all have struggles, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we all have challenges, things that we struggle with. Absolutely. And, and so it's, it's really easy, I think, Um, to say, well, yeah, you're not the only one with problems, you know, like that's a natural reaction. But I think what we're seeing now is for people to say, you know what, I need to stop and listen because, you know, just because somebody else is having, like, it doesn't have to be a competition and I can hear what other people's challenges are. And I, you know, in ways that I hadn't considered before. So like, you know, I love that that was the reaction of your colleague who could have gotten defensive (laughs) and been like, that's not what it was about. But it was like, you know what? I hadn't thought of it that way um, because yeah. that's what I think um, we're, we're starting to see more of is more people in positions of power, white people in particular saying, I haven't thought of these things from that perspective and I need to, yeah. I need to start Absolutely. doing that. And because for so long it's felt like the onus has been on people of color to figure this out, right? Like right. figure out what you need to do. What do you need to get, you know, get where you need to be and, and, you know, just, you know, let me know if you need something, whatever. But now it's like, <laughs> now it's like, no, maybe we need to stop and say, okay, what are we doing that is preventing those things from happening? What are, um, you know, or what are we not doing? What are we just casually ignoring? Because it's like, well, I'm, I'm not doing this stuff. I didn't create this policy or I haven't said anything, you know, horrific like that knowingly, Um, you know? And so it's, it's really easy to look at yourself and be like, I'm a good person. Like, why is this on me? But it's like, well, it is, Um, you know, it's on all of us. um, And we obviously, we have to all work together. Um, and, And hearing even just that, just like, uh, I love College Station. Everything's great about that. And you're like, uh, no, never in a million years right. will I live there. Um, you know, so we need to hear those perspectives. It's like, well, why? What specifically, you know, let's have this uncomfortable conversation. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's say that, like, this is not okay, um, that, you know, you were in a, um, you know, you were in a, a town, a city, a college, you know, 
college town, whatever you want to call it, that you didn't feel comfortable with for whatever yeah. reasons. And let's say, well, what, let's examine that. What were those reasons? And what can we do to make, make a change? How do we start? You know, but we have to, we have to be open to that and to say, it's, it's not just, oh, that was, that was your problem. You just, I can't right. believe you didn't like College Station. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, I was really pleasantly surprised when she responded that way because it could have gone very badly. And it was certainly not something that I, I don't, and this was a couple of years ago, actually, yeah. before all of, you know, everything that's been going on now. Um, but it was just kind of, the, the moment it left my mouth, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And then she responded so positively, like, oh, okay, this is going to be fine. Yeah. We could kind of laugh about it and have a conversation. But that's not always what happens in my right. experience. And right. so, you know, you kind of learn to not say things. Um, and it's been interesting for me. I'm married to a white man who's, I mean, he's an amazing human being. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful and lucky to be with him. But, and he's lucky to be with me too. Right. Um, but, <laughs> I tell my but, husband you know, that all the time. Been, yeah. <laughs> But we've been having some interesting conversations yeah. lately, too. And one of them um, was the other day I was reading something online, which was not pleasant because none of the news is nice these days. Um, and it sort of prompted me to look at him and say, you know, that must be a really weird time to be a white man, too. And he just kind of looked at me like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, it must be weird to know that you walk down the street and have a whole bunch of people looking at you, thinking of you in a certain way mm -hmm. that actually isn't who you are. Right. And he's like, well, we've earned it. And I was like, yeah, but not everybody has earned right. it. Not I you said, specifically. Just, right. Like not every white man is about oppressing black people right. and people of color or is a misogynist or anything yeah. like that. And I said, but at the same time, hopefully it gives people pause to yeah. stop and say, oh, this is what black people and women and people of color and LGBTQ people have been dealing with their entire lives and in many cases for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's a good point of sort of conversation to have, but yeah. it was, it, it gave me pause because I was like, okay, we can't swing yeah. the pendulum so far right. that we don't recognize that now there's some issues that are coming up with being a white person, which aren't fair either. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's, that's, we run into some trouble. Like, I think we have to recognize that there are some shared experiences, right? Like if you have, you know, a, a similar background or, um, you know, you, you look similar to, to someone else, you're going to have some experiences that are shared. Um, but it, it can't, it can't always be just us versus them. Like, cause like you said, if the right. pendulum swings so far in the other direction, you're like, well, I'm trying to be a good person, but every time I turn around, I'm getting blamed for all these things. Right. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you can understand why people would rebel against that. But I, I think on the flip side is, it's also recognizing that just because you didn't create the system, that doesn't mean you can't be part of dismantling the problems, you know? And, and I think that's where, you know, we're getting, you know, having conversations not just about don't be racist, be anti-racist, right? Like that's, right. that's different. And I think that's really important conceptually. Um, you know, in some ways it feels like a subtle distinction, but it, it can mean a huge, huge difference to say like, yeah, I don't actively commit racist acts or, you know, consider or, you know, or, or do things that would promote that. But if I'm not actively trying to, undo some of those things that already exist, it, then it's not enough, right? And right. so um, I think that's where the conversation is starting to move um, into more of an active component rather than just passively like, well, I'm not a bad person, so I'm, I'm good. I'm yeah. absolved of, of all responsibility. Like, nope, that's not Absolutely. good enough. Yeah. It's been really nice to see a, a lot of people come together, regardless of color, gender, um, socioeconomic status, just yeah. coming together and saying, this isn't okay. And yeah. I think that's I, I was talking with a couple of my really good girlfriends from my graduate program. We meet every week and we were having a conversation about what is, what is it that's different this time? What is it that yeah. has sort of catalyzed this movement? And I, I'm sure there are going to be lots of scholars who look at that and I'm yeah. curious about that too. But I, I think in the end, as long as it continues and people really yeah. try to stay 
willing to sort of self-reflect and have these ideas about, okay, well, it's not enough for me to stay silent anymore. I can't just walk down the street and watch something happen and just turn my head. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say something or support them or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it's been really, it's been really nice in a lot of ways to see that happen for sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, maybe you could share some of your experiences like after graduation since, you know, becoming a veterinarian. Have you continued to experience that? Or maybe like, you know, once you're like, okay, I've graduated, I am good enough. I am smart enough for this. Like, look at me, I've done it. Like, did some of that go away and did that help? Or would you say you've still experienced some of the, either the self-doubt or, or just the, the racism, you know, even after that, how how has that changed for you? Um, so I've definitely experienced a lot of the self-doubt and now I have to be a hundred percent honest with you that that self-doubt doesn't all come from me being Asian. A lot of that sure. just comes from being raised by a family that wasn't particularly supportive and, and helpful. Gotcha. Um, so, and, and as you know, vet school is just, it's just kind of an overwhelming thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, super hard and, and it's a yeah. very difficult time in, in a lot of people's lives. And yeah. Yeah. So, but like getting so, through it is like a pretty amazing accomplishment, right? Yeah. yeah. So I tell my, I tell my, I tell people who say, you know, Hey, I want to go to vet school. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's great. And then I talk to vet students who are like, Oh gosh, I just, I feel like I'm so far behind. Like, listen, I was behind after the first hour of lecture in vet school and I still haven't caught up. So <laughs> yeah, just get right. used to it. Right. It's a persistent state um, of being. Yeah. But I, I've definitely, experienced some overt racism and less overt racism since I became a veterinarian. So I I went into clinical practice. I didn't want to go into clinical practice. That never was really kind of my goal of becoming a veterinarian, but I had bills to pay as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Lots of them. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could do that was to go into small animal clinical practice. So I went into small animal clinical practice and I was at my first job for a little over a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got fired from my first job, actually. He fired me on a Thursday and I had my letter of resignation due. I was getting ready to turn it in on Friday. So, so he just kind of beat it was me to mutual. the punch. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was definitely a mutual departure. I just kind of made me mad because he beat me to the punch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um I so he it was a bit it's a fairly large practice, a pretty good practice here in, in Fort Worth. And um the staff of eight uh, eight veterinarians at the time. Um he had one Latin woman who was she, she very, very good veterinarian. And then, um, the rest were white women. He was a white, no, there was one other white man. He was a white man. The rest were white women. And then there was me. So I was mm-hmm. Asian. Um, and all of his technicians were either Latin or, or white. Okay. Um, so it is a, I mean, it was a great experience. I got a lot of really good experience. I like to brag that I, I got all the experiences of a small animal internship without the hours and the crap. Right. Pay. So I, <laughs> yeah. I can't complain too much about that. Um, but I found out later after I had left that he was telling a story to one of my former clients. Cause I had friends who were still working there that overheard him having a conversation with one of my former clients. Um, and so he had taken over my clients and this woman came in and was asking, you know, why she wasn't seeing me today. And he's like, well, what do you, who's your regular veterinarian? She's like, oh, I, I can never remember her name cause she's Asian, but I, you know, her name doesn't seem Asian. He was like, oh, oh, you're talking about Dr. Fogelberg. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's her. I really liked her. Well, you know, where is she? And he basically launched into this story about, you know, it was during the recession and all this kind of stuff. And unfortunately we had to, you know, let her go. And she's like, yeah, it was just, you know, it was always kind of weird because she would come in and say her name was Dr. Fogelberg, but she, you know, she looked Asian. He's like, yeah, I know. Right. It's, it was really weird because I was doing my interview with her and we interviewed over the phone and she didn't have an accent and everything just sounded fine. And then I invited her for an in-person interview and I saw her and I just had to take a deep breath and tell myself that everything was going to be okay. Whoa. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? What? (laughs) Like, everything is going to be okay. What did you think happened to you? Like, okay, wow. 
Yeah. So wow. I don't know what he thought. Right. Uh, I'm sure he thought he was talking to a, a white person on the phone, which I understand because people make that mistake sure. all the time. But then to actually go to the point where you're like freaked out because right. the person you talked to on the phone like what was doesn't look like what you thought they were going to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and like we all do that, right? You hear someone's voice, you don't know what they look like, and you imagine what they look like, and then sure. you see them, and inevitably they don't look anything like what you pictured. Um, right. You know, like always. Um, and so it's like, well, really? Like that was that disorienting for you? Here's the thing that I find even more disturbing about that. He felt okay sharing that story. Right? With a stranger. Right? Yeah. Like somebody yeah. who was complimenting you and saying, hey, I really like... what." what did you think you were going to convey? Yeah. Like that's, I think that's the scary part for me is that you have somebody like that who's in a position of power and authority and feels completely comfortable saying really pretty awful things. Right. Well, and he hired me. So clearly, you know, like everything is going to be okay. Yeah. (laughs) We're really worried about it. Then why would you even hire me? So Um, weird. So yeah, it was a very sort of strange situation. Like he was trying Um, to commiserate with this client. Like, yeah, the name, like, okay, you're done. You've told the story. Like, yeah. Fogelberger isn't what I was expecting, but like that, that's it. You're done now. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You can be done with that. That's you don't super have to weird. Kind of take it a step. I mean, and he was one of those guys now to be fair. I think he, he was one of those people who was having a really difficult time with the shift from primarily a male sure. dominated society to a female. Yeah. And I mean, he's not that much older than me, but he yeah. would walk around saying things like, you know, I wish we could sterilize all our technicians so they'd stop getting pregnant. And it, so yeah. he, he clearly said yeah. things that were inappropriate, period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, that so that was, I think, my first experience with that overtly. And then actually at the clinic I just told you about where the vet and I had sort of that funny interaction about about College Station. Um, I had a client who had seen me at one point. She was a nurse, actually. She was a human nurse. And mm-hmm. she had seen me at one point with her pet. And then left and then called in um, on a Saturday. It was a Saturday morning. And she had decided that she needed to to euthanize her dog because mm-hmm. he was just going downhill really quickly. And she didn't want to go to an emergency hospital. So I was in an exam room with a client. And I kind of overheard, you know, half the conversation, which was my receptionist saying, I'm sorry, all of our veterinarians speak English here. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I was I was like, what's going on out there? And so she gets off the phone and she comes and she's like, Dr. Fogelberg, you're going to see this client later, but I have to tell you this conversation. I'm like, yeah, what was that conversation all about? And she's like, well, this lady really wants to come in and bring her dog in to be euthanized, but she, she didn't want to see you because apparently she saw you one other time and she couldn't understand you because of your accent. <laughs> this is like the opposite of the last story, right? Like you, yeah, they yeah, couldn't, exactly. they couldn't tell because you, you didn't have an accent and therefore I didn't know what to expect. And right. now your, your accent yeah. isn't matching what you look like. And that's throwing me. Wow. Exactly. And so she and I are having this great laugh about it and we're just like, what the heck is that all about? You know, or whatever. And so, but yeah, she insisted. Well, maybe you just didn't understand. have enough of a Texas drawl that, well, you so, know, yeah, that's what I told her, I was like, well, I should have gone in and be like, well, hi honey, how can I help you? Does yeah. this, you know, does this help you understand oh, me a little better? You that's know, I just, so I'm, tough though. You know, because like, <laughs> you're like, she's in a tough situation, you know, and like she's using yeah. her pet, like that's terrible, but like, this doesn't excuse, like, what are you talking about? Right. Exactly. What are you talking about? Wow. So that was, that was a very strange experience. And, you know, I shared that with one of my friends at the time I was, I was full-time at a different institution as well at a, in an academic institution. Cause I was just working one day a week in the clinic and I shared it with one of my friends who happens to be Latin. She's Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from what we call the Valley. So deep South Texas. Okay. Um, and so I was telling her this story, her name's Candace. And she was like, Oh yeah, that happens to me all the time. She's like, I was in Walmart one day and I was looking for something on the shelf and there happened to be another lady there and I couldn't find it. So I just kind of looked at her. I was like, Hey, you wouldn't have to know where this product is. And the lady looked at me and she's like, Oh, 
oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't speak Spanish. You know? <laughs> like, like, I wasn't speaking in Spanish. Exactly. <laughs> like, but do you speak English? You answered me in English. I could have sworn that's the language I was using. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not isolated. It's not something yeah. that happens just to sure. me. But it's one of those things that you don't... So weird. I, I, I don't know that I've ever talked to another white person who said they had somebody ask them if they speak English or no. said, I'm sorry, I don't understand you because you look, you know. Right. It's just... I mean, I guess the closest I could come is maybe sort of these preconceived ideas that, you know, Southerners are not very smart because they have this Southern drawl or whatever, maybe would be the closest thing I could come to. Um, But I don't know that I've ever had anybody tell me who was white that somebody come up to them and said, hey, do you speak English? Um, Which I also get on a routine basis. And, And to be fair, you know, and I think I had sent this to you in my email, to be fair, Many of the people who ask me if I speak English are actually black people. Yeah. And so I, I don't, and, and, and I am an ally of, I have many, many black friends. I love, you know, um, all kinds of people. Um, but I, I think it is really important to talk about the fact that it's, it's, it's not just white people who oppress Oh no, racism people. is and not the exclusive yeah, domain of, of white people for sure. And right, everybody, exactly. everybody has implicit biases. Right. Like we all have them. Like I, I was actually really disappointed to find out like when I was doing one of those um, sessions and like kind of the mini training and like I had some biases against women. Like, you know what I mean? Your implicit bias where you're like, you're expecting a certain thing and it's not, you know, again, by definition, like it's, it's a subconscious thing, but it's not something I created. This is a societal thing. And we all have that. We know, we, we know statistically, we know that like black people can be racist towards other black people. We know that like women can be, you know, misogynistic. Like we know we all have these things. And, and so, no, I think it's a really good point to say that it's not, it's not just the white men that are the problem. Like it's, it's, it's human nature and we have these implicit biases and, and they can be a good thing in certain situations. They help us survive. We don't have to process every little bit of information new every time. The key is to recognize when we have that impulse or we have that thought that was like, uh, maybe that wasn't a good reaction. And then, you know, your conscious brain can come in and be like, I'm going to, I'm going to self-censor. I'm going to edit that. I'm going to try to make those changes. So I I, I think we also have to forgive ourselves a little bit, um, you know, for some of those initial gut reactions that we have, but we have to identify them for what they are. And in the, you know, if I'm walking down a dark alley and I see a bunch of men, I don't care what they look like. Guess what? I don't feel comfortable. (laughs) I don't feel okay with this. And that's a normal thing. You know what? I'm going to walk away. I don't care if I hurt your feelings. Um, But if I'm interviewing you for a job, (laughs) then there's no place. There's no place for that reaction. And so I think it's recognizing the difference and when is this a beneficial bias and when is this not appropriate at all? And under the circumstances, I'm not in danger in the situation and therefore I need to, to look at these things and create a scenario where my implicit biases cannot influence my actions. You know, right. that, that's really, I think, what it, it comes down to is recognizing that we have them, though. And if we don't recognize or acknowledge that, yeah, like we all, every single one of us has this. We are wired this way. This is for yes. our survival. But when it's not specifically in this moment for our survival, we need to try to do better. Yeah. Have you ever heard Avenue Q, heard of Avenue Q? The, the, the play? Yeah. Yeah, I've and seen the, it. The I saw it. It was ha- actually, oh. yeah. It was okay, um, so ha- so you know everybody's a little bit racist? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like one of my favorite songs. Yeah. It's so true. They actually had a, a production of that, like the local um, uh, local production thing in Gainesville here several years ago, and I went and saw it. It was hilarious. Yeah, um, it was awesome. Yeah. It was, I was like, and, it, yeah. And, 
And I, you know, I've had comments from other Korean women who were born and raised in Korea and came over because, as I said, I spent 10 years in the military and a lot of GIs go over there and do a tour and sometimes they get married and bring a Korean woman home. And I've had run-ins with Korean women who screamed at me and yelled at me because I didn't speak Korean and I looked Korean and I, you know, had Japanese people not like me because I was Korean and there's lots of animosity there. So I'm not trying to point out, you know, specifically, but I I do think it's an important part of the conversation to say that. Racism isn't the exclusive domain of white no. people. It's no. or white men or whatever you want to say. Right. It's, it's something that, like no, you said, we're it's all imperfect. All um, and yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to look who's in power in this. You know, if there's a yes, power dynamic, sure. and now in an individual circumstance, the power dynamic might not follow what we typically expect, right? It might not be the white man that's in power. Um, right. But so when, whenever there is an imbalance of power, that's when these these biases come into play. Um, because if you're being, you know. B- the bias is working against you and you're in that inferior position, that's not fair. <laughs> I don't care right, who you are. Exactly. It's not fair. Um, <laughs> right. And so again, it's it's calling it out in all situations, um, but recognizing right now, in the moment we're in right now, on a larger scale, some people are more likely to benefit from our institutional, um, you know, the systematic racism that we have in place over other people. Like that that's Absolutely. just the system that we have. And, yeah. um, and, and that's not good for anyone in, in the long run because, you know, increasing diversity is really good for there's lots of evidence how good that is for all of us and it's not just racial diversity or what people look like diversity of thought and I've I've said this before on the podcast that you know the more people we have from different backgrounds and and you know different um, perspectives you know if you get 10 white people and line them up you're going to have different perspectives from all of those people Um, but you know if you get people from all over the United States or better yet all over the world regardless of their skin color you're going to get more perspectives and then you're going to get a richer, you know, um, conversation. You're going to get people seeing each other's blind spots and you're going to, in, in medicine, that's like so important to me is yeah. that I need somebody who, who has a very different training background, who has a different life background and things like that. They're going to be far more likely to see my blind spots than somebody who has, um, you know, kind of come through the system in a very similar way that I have regardless, 100%. you know, and so, so those types of things I think are, are really important, but we can start with looking at race, you know, that, that, that yeah. chances are, you know, you're going to have a different perspective there. Um, yeah. I think one of the other things that I, it, that's like really important and particularly from the Asian perspective to talk about, I think you touched on at the beginning was that Asian sort of covers a huge swath yeah. of very different races and ethnicities. And yeah. it's a, it's a really easy thing to just say, Oh, you're Asian. Lump everybody together. Yeah. Are you, are you Korean? Are you mm-hmm. Japanese? Are you um, Thai? Are you Filipino? Are yeah. you, Pakistani, are you yeah. Indian? You know, so I think they're yeah. Asia's a pretty that, big continent, right? Like yeah, that's, it's a, that's it's a, a lot of people. Lump, um, but I think the other thing that I I would like to make people aware of, if given the opportunity, is this idea of I I don't know how many people are familiar with the model minority myth, but um, yeah. just sort of digging. I was just reading the Time Magazine article about it. Oh, okay, yeah. great. I'm glad they're publishing on it again because yeah. it's one of those things that I think. Um, and honestly, I didn't do a lot of reading about the origin of how it happened until I started having sort of some conversations with some of my Asian American and Asian uh, female friends that I kind of got into a research group with over the last year and a half. But I did a little bit of reading on the history of it. And, and it was started by white men because it was started by the U.S. administration in an attempt to say, hey, all these immigrants, you know, we have this one population of immigrants that are of Asian heritage and they are doing extraordinarily well. Yeah. They're the model minority, right? Yeah. They're the people who come here, they work hard, they're smart, they have this great work ethic, they're, you know, doing so, so well. Mm-hmm. So why aren't black people doing the same thing mm-hmm. or Hispanic people doing the same thing? 
And so I think a lot of times people, and this happens to me quite a bit, you know, um, I, I had one incident, particularly when I was in vet school and college station, and I had a woman come over to me in the Starbucks. I was making the mistake of trying to study at a Starbucks. So that was my first <laughs> mistake, but, um, I had all my notes out, which were clearly written in English to me, at least, I guess, maybe some Latin. Um, but the woman came over and kind of like tapped me on the shoulder and I looked up at her and she said to me, um, she said, excuse me. And I looked at her. I didn't say anything. I looked at her and then she kind of leaned over me and very carefully said, do you speak English? Oh, God. And I just looked at her and I said, yes. And then she said, oh, great. Cause I'm having a problem getting my computer connected to the internet. And I was hoping maybe you could help me with that. Oh, and I'm God. thinking to myself, Number one, don't insult somebody before you ask them for help. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, just because I'm Asian doesn't mean I'm good at computers. You right. Know? And so yeah. I basically mm-hmm. had to say, no, I'm not great at computers, but, yeah. you know, whatever. And so I, I kind of put her off. But it's this idea that if yeah. you're Asian, you're you're mm-hmm. slender, you're pretty, you're attractive, you don't have mental health issues, you're mm-hmm. very smart, you're going to work really hard, and you're probably going to be very successful. Yeah. And while that's true for some Asians, yeah. it's certainly not true for all Asians. And in fact, they've done studies sociologically and psychologically that demonstrate that that model minority myth has done so much mental and emotional health damage yeah. to Asians that that's one of the reasons they oftentimes have a higher rate of suicide and a higher rate of depression because yeah. they feel like they, they have, have to this, live up to this yeah, model. They have yeah. this implicit standard that they have to reach. And when they don't reach it, they have imposter syndrome. They feel like yeah. they're not good enough. And I certainly have experienced much of that because I've been told my whole life, I was the only uh, Asian girl in my elementary school, the only Asian girl in mm-hmm. my middle school and my junior high. I finally had another Asian woman in my um, high school, but um, I've been told my whole life, well, you're Asian, you must be smart. You know, yeah. and it's like, okay, but then when I get a C in geometry, right. does that mean that, I'm not smart? Am I right. letting down an entire race? You know? Yeah. Um, that, so it can be equally damaging. It's, um, yeah, well, that's the thing. Any of those kind of expectations or stereotypes that we have, like, oh, yeah, but that's a good stereotype. Well, what does that really mean? <laughs> um, no, not really. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's, again... <laughs> any of these biases we have, we have to just acknowledge them and and they're not, you know, they just don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, If you, you know, are in a situation where you can stop, you can calmly assess the situation. Like you're in the United States, you're at a Starbucks and there's somebody, you know, sitting there. Why would you assume that that person can't speak English? I can see if you're in Germany, right? And you're, you're sitting around and you're like looking around for someone who speaks English. Like that seems like a reasonable question to have, you know, Uh, like, Hey, do do you speak English by chance? Oh yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. But like, (laughs) it doesn't make sense. You're in the United States where that is, you know, the official language and most people speak it. Now, if you start talking to somebody and they they don't speak okay well then you move on you but like why would your right. assumption be that like that I don't know um yeah. you know or I guess you could, I could almost see like I you know maybe you were in a, with a group of people and they overheard you speaking some language that wasn't English then then sure right. that seems right. like a reasonable thing to to ask like oh do you also speak English but uh like the, the question of do you speak English isn't inherently you know offensive or racist but like Look at the situation, right? Like that doesn't make sense. Yeah, this does not make sense because you look a certain way. The assumption is, oh, you might not speak English. You you must be from another country. Like, you know, I don't know. It's just, (laughs) I think I I struggle with it sometimes because I grew up in Southern California, 
And the schools that I went to were pretty diverse, actually. Um, when I mm -hmm. think, you know, I think back and, you know, as a child, you sort of take all that for granted, you know, uh, I, like, right. and I'm at, now I look back and I can remember some people I went to school with and I think like, yeah, okay. Um, you know, I, I know that these people were from various, I'm not very good because I was a kid and I was like, they're all American. Like I didn't, I didn't actually know right. like if you were a Vietnamese American or Korean American or, um, you know, I, I just, I honestly don't know. I could go back and I could list you some names. Um, and if you were good with that kind of stuff, you might be able to like, oh, that's probably this, but I, I don't know. And so that was sort of my assumption growing up. Like, no, these, these are all just, these are the people that live in this area. And right. I, yeah, it's, it, it, it is hard though if you end up in an area where there isn't that, you know, for kids and they, they do see this and the only time they've ever seen, you know, people of color, Asian people portrayed in the media, they're playing a certain role right. and that, that plays a big role, right, in developing those implicit biases. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and so that's where I think we have to start looking, you know, inwardly and saying, okay, I may not have created the system <laughs> that, that, you know, developed these biases in myself, you know, the media, um, whatever, whether that's, you know, Hollywood, movies, things like that, um, the culture that I grew up in we didn't none of us had a choice right over where what city we grew up in where our parents right. raised us we don't have a choice over that but we can look at that now I'm an adult and I can look back and say okay this is the scenario that I grew up in and these are the influences that I've had let's examine let's do a little self-reflection and say what impact might that be having on my behaviors um, right and let's 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 do the work let's try to think about that and let's talk about that let's admit it's going to be a little uncomfortable like I said, I really didn't like finding out that some of my implicit biases are against, not, not against women, but, but you know, you're just like, oh, you make this sure. assumption that somebody yeah. in this position is more likely to be a man. And like, like that, oh, that hurts. That hurt me. Yeah, so, you know, it does. but, yeah. um, cause I'm like, I, I think of myself as, you know, fairly feminist in that regard. My husband would certainly say that. And, <laughs> and, but, um, but that's, that's the thing. We don't always have control over where these biases come from. And, and so, right. you know, acknowledge that, forgive yourself, but say, let's move on and let's try to do the work to, to improve it. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely a social construct. If yeah. you watch a whole bunch of little kids playing together, they don't care what each other looks like. They don't no. care. You know, they don't start caring about that until they start seeing older kids and adults saying and doing things towards certain right. groups of people. So it's, you know, much of it, you're not born a racist. No. You're not born with no. biases. You're, you're raised in a society that sort of allows that to happen. Yeah. And I think the, the way we use our language is really, yeah. um, it's really impactful. And so like, I think back to that sticks and stones, you know, can break my yeah. bones, but words can never hurt me and how so untrue that is, because, <laughs> right. you know, words are, are really, really powerful. Yeah. And so I think even just thinking about if, if you, if you're willing to sit down and take the time to think about how you're going to use your language in a way that's, yeah. that is precise and positive. So yeah. like one of the things that my husband hates is when we go out somewhere and somebody asks me where I'm from mm -hmm. and I just look at them and I say, well, I'm from Colorado. And they're like, no, but where are you from? Right. And I'm like, Colorado, Colorado really and they're like but but where are you from and I'm like I don't understand what you're trying to ask me and they're like and I do I know exactly yeah, what yeah. you're trying to say um and many of them will make the leap and say well but where were you born and I just look at them and I say that's a very different question you yeah. know yeah. I was born in South Korea but I am an American I was raised yeah. in the United States and many of them walk away going well I had to work way too hard to get that answer but right. you know a few of them I hope walk away understanding that the language they use and the questions they ask may not be getting what they think they're getting, you know? Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, well, and, and so he's like, well, why don't you just tell them? I'm like, because they need to understand they need to learn maybe a it's a bit. passive aggressive way to do yeah. it. But <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Catherine. So um, if it's a stranger walking up and out, it's like, why does that matter? Like, that's sort of irrelevant. But like, if you're, you know, you meet some people for the first time and then they're trying to get to know you and they want to know maybe more about your background, would that be like, how would you recommend somebody approach that question? If they say, hey, because... One of the things that struck me lately is, you know, we have this this issue. We don't want to talk about racism. And so people will say, you know, ridiculous things like, I don't see color or whatever. It's like, well, that's, right. that's not helpful. Like, yes, right. you do. We all do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And saying you don't see color is 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 harmful in its, in its own way. Um, and so, you know, I think what happens, you know, white people get to where they're like, ah, I, I'm afraid to say something stupid. I'm afraid to say something sure. wrong. And so they, they could either shut down and not reach across and talk to other people. But like, so if, if you know, I'm getting to know you and I say, well, gosh, you know, I actually don't, I don't know. Yes, you're Asian American, but that's, that's lumping a lot of people together. I want to know a little bit more. Maybe there's more to your background. How would you want somebody um, that you're getting to know to, to approach that topic? That's a great question. I think there are a couple of ways you can do it. You can just say, where were you raised? Mm -hmm. Right. So where were you raised? What's your background? Yeah. And then if, like, if somebody asked me, what's my background? I might say, well, do you mean where I was raised or where I was born or, you know, kind of what, if you want to know specifically, if you want to get kind of straight to the heart of it is, you know, like what's your ethnicity is, I don't think inappropriate. Um, it's, it's not something that I would ask a white person, but I understand that that's sometimes interesting to people. And so if they were to say, Hey, what's your ethnicity? Oh, well, I was born in Korea, but I'm actually American. Then that's a really open and honest way to answer that question. I think the problem with where are you from is that there's this implicit idea that where you're from from somewhere else. Well, and also you're from somewhere else, you know, right. And that you're from somewhere else. And and I've been told on numerous occasions to go back to my own country. And that is probably one of the most hurtful things that people can say to me because I spent 10 years of my life defending the flag and the constitution of this country so that you could say that to me. So this is my country. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, just the fact that somebody would say, where are you from? Says that I'm not from the same place that they're from. So yeah, you know, what, where were you raised? What is your ethnicity? What is your background? Um, I think they're all really great ways to kind of ask those questions without, without it being sort of, Oh, I don't really like the way that was asked. Yeah. Good. Well, that hopefully is helpful for some people because I think people do get curious. I mean, I know even amongst white people, like we talk about my family, like, you know, ancestors where people, because none of us are like... I'm a white person. Guess what? My ancestors aren't from the United States. Right. <laughs> we, most people, most we, white people aren't actually. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, we'll talk about, okay, we had great, great grandfathers and great, great grandmothers who were here, there and, and had, you know, with this, we, we talk about all the different, you know, bits and pieces that are, are there. And in my family, you know, there's some Irish, there's some Scottish, there's actually some, a little tiny bit of, of Native American. Like, I mean, just, we don't even know anymore. You know, it, right. it's just so much <laughs> of that. But like, that's something people want to talk about. We, you know, there's all yeah. this genealogy stuff. And, and so I do think it's it's a way that people could say I'm interested in in you know knowing more about you um but not wanting to you know not knowing how to ask it and so yeah you know what is your background and then that gives you a little bit of that gives you a chance to say oh well tell me what you mean and you can help have a conversation um exactly and you can decide how much you want to share of that as well um and because I think that that can be um, you know, really important is making sure that you're respecting people's boundaries because some people might not want to share um, that right. much and, and that's okay too. Uh, and so I think that's probably an important thing for people to run, you know, hey, what is your background? You say, you know what, I'm not really comfortable sharing that. Okay. Absolutely. Leave it alone yeah, then. Absolutely. Um, yep. So um, I, I want to, this has been really good, but I do want to pivot just a little bit because you pivoted in your career um, as you, you kind of implied you didn't stay in, in pro, um, private practice for very long. 
tell me a little bit about your career shift, and then maybe we can chat um, a little bit about what are some some changes you know you would envision in veterinary medicine to improve diversity and inclusion. Sure. Um, so actually, I my pivot was actually to clinical practice because I really didn't want to yeah. be a clinician. Right. But, um, but but pivoting out of clinical practice into academia was um, something I sort of. I guess I never necessarily thought I would be an academician, but I knew that I didn't want to be in clinical practice and it seemed like another way to go. But um, <clears throat> it actually started when I was in vet school. I started thinking about, um, and this is sort of something that has nothing to do with race or anything that we've been talking about today, but sort of the lack of um, training that our veterinary instructors in vet school get in terms of how to teach was something Mm -hmm. that was very concerning to me. Um, So when I went to vet school, I actually had a master's degree in education. And my last two years in the military, I was in sort of the education realm. And that's where I discovered that I really enjoyed um, education. So I had my master's in education when I graduated or when I started vet school. And so I had a little bit more sort of training in that area. And a lot more training. (laughs) Yeah. You you had more education training than your instructors did at that point. Yes. Yes. Now, not in veterinary medicine, but certainly in how to deliver and teach people um, about things. And so um, there was one particular incident, one particular incident that stands out to me. And it was I was I was failing radiology. I was really struggling with radiology. Um, and so I had reached out to the, the primary instructor of the course who shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> but I, I made an appointment because I had failed the first exam and we only had two exams left. And so I yeah. knew that I needed to pull my grade up. So yeah. I went and talked to this person and I just said, Hey, I really need some help. I don't understand what's going on because I study and I know this material and then I get to the exams and, you know, for some reason it yeah. just doesn't, it just Not doesn't translate. Yeah. And the faculty member looked at me and said, well, are you memorizing your notes? I said, no, I, I'm not memorizing my notes. I, I want to learn the material. He, right. And the person was like, but that is learning the material. And I, and I said, oh, man. with all due respect, um, I have a master's degree in education. And I can tell you that memorization is not learning. No. I want to learn the material. And yeah. the person just looked at me. It. Yeah. And the person just looked at me and said, well, but memorization is the first step. So you just need to memorize your notes. And so I walked out oh. and I was so frustrated. Yeah. So I found a little group that started helping me study within my class. And then I went to one of the other instructors in radiology and I said the same thing to this person. And that person was like, well, let's get together during radiology labs because oh, cool. I'm old enough that we were still reading plain films. Yeah. Um, well, let's get together in radiology labs. You can like read some films for me and we'll talk yeah. about it and we'll see where you are. And so I was reading films for this person and she, she was like, you're reading films better than my fourth year students. And we had radiology in second year. And she was like, I don't understand why you're struggling because you clearly know the material. Well, what it comes down to is the way the exams were written, they weren't really, the exams were really poorly written. Right. So it was like, we would see, we would see our radio, we would see our radiograph for 10 seconds on the screen. And then it would have a question. The question would be like four sentences long. And then it would be like, is it a one and two? Is it B? And it would be like a through J and it was just like these ridiculous exams. So I was able to pull my grade up. But at that point I was like, something needs to be done about this. Right. Cause not every instructor is bad and not every instructor who's bad wants to be bad. They just don't know how to get better. Right. So at that point it was kind of like, I really wanted to pivot into veterinary education, trying to figure out a way to help improve the experience. Cause that school's hard. It should, it's always going to be hard. Sure. It doesn't need to be made harder by really crappy instructors. Right. So, like there's, it's hard because the material it can be complicated and there's right. a lot of it. And, you know, exactly. it's all cumulative because it's, it's medicine and it kind of has to be. But yeah, yes. that, yeah, like you said, let's not create additional barriers. Right. 
So um, I, I kind of knew when I, I actually wanted to do a dual program and finish my DVM and do a PhD in education while I was going through vet school and um, couldn't get anybody in the education department to talk to me. So that didn't work out. Um, so I always kind of knew I would go back to education. So mm-hmm. um, I went out, I graduated in 2008. I was in full-time practice for six years or for three years. And I was kind of like, I really, this isn't, I know this isn't what I want to do. Right. Like I've known this for a long time. So, um, so I ended up going back and getting a PhD in education um, at Texas Christian University. And and that was my goal, right, was mm-hmm. to get back into veterinary school, um, veterinary program and be able to kind of help improve the teaching. But what I discovered and part of the part of the challenge for me, and this is something else I think we need to talk about increasing diversity in veterinary medicine, is that none of the vet schools wanted to hire me because I didn't have a specialty. Right. So I wasn't specialty right. trained. I wasn't residency trained. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even internship trained. And so they didn't think I had anything to offer because I didn't have this in-depth content in veterinary medicine. But I had 10 years of clinical experience, so I kind of knew what a general practitioner needed to know and how to navigate that situation. And I had this sort of, I had this really strong base of um, research and practice and and teaching. So I actually ended up teaching in a school of public health for eight years before I ended up in in vet medicine at a a veterinary institution. And I, I found an institution that was looking for somebody who had the kind of background experience I had. Um, and wasn't particularly worried that I didn't have specialty training because they were looking, my specialty training is in education. Right. Yeah. You Um, were just way ahead of the curve because we're starting to see that now more in veterinary medicine, right? Where there, where there's actually value on education training and and a lot of schools are hiring education specialists who aren't veterinarians. So you are in this actually very, very unique and, you know, really amazing position where you have both, like you, you are a veterinarian, you (laughs) practice as a veterinarian and you have advanced training and, you know, scholarship in education. Like you're a bit of a unicorn, right? (laughs) Like in that, in that regard. Yeah, they're about there. When I came on board, I think there were probably a handful of us who had advanced degrees or or terminal degrees in education as well as in in veterinary medicine. I think there are probably closer to 10 now, but, and there are a few more than that who have master's degrees, for example, Um, but in terms of the terminal degree. So yeah, so that was another barrier that I had to overcome was this sort of focus on this idea that you could only teach in a vet school. You only had something to offer a vet school if you were residency and or board certified. So that was, that was another, so it took me a while to break into, into veterinary medicine and veterinary education. Um, But I've always, even when I was in vet school, I think I told you we had some email exchanges and um, you had asked about how to improve um, diversity in veterinary medicine in general. And and you're 100% right. It needs to start well before high school. It yeah. needs to start in very at a very young age, ideally from the time of birth, but that's not right. Certainly like, you know, but shortly first, thereafter. First, yeah, kindergarten, first, second grade. Yeah. I don't think there's any way, you know, there's no reason to not start bringing these types of things up. And um, and so we had chatted a little bit about some ideas, you know, yeah. I both had about doing that. And so when I was in vet school, one of the things that I noticed was, so um, I had four, two black, three black women and one black man in my class who started and none of the women finished. Um, the man did, he actually ended up doing a DVM PhD in seven years. He's phenomenal. Wow. Um, but, um, but there was, and then my own experiences as an Asian woman, um, sort of made me start thinking about this whole situation and how we could improve the, this, the climates for those people, for all of us, because particularly I, I had befriended two of the black women whom I loved dearly, um, and they basically said, we can't do this. We don't have any support. Like we yeah. don't have anybody we can talk to. I, mm-hmm. I just listened to your, your other podcast, 
Um, and it was the same experiences that they, yeah. they just, they didn't have the, the, the support. No they didn't, to, yeah. And there, and even in the community, it was difficult yeah. to walk through and they would have people ask them, what are you doing? Oh, I go to vet school. Wait, you're black. How do you go to vet school? Like one of the women yeah. had actually had people say that to her. Wow. Um, and so I had sort of this idea in my head that if we could start a camp, like a science camp mm-hmm. that introduced kids very early to all of the wonders of science, which is really funny because I actually don't consider myself a scientist. I'm much more a social scientist, yeah. like writer, artsy, fartsy person. But yeah. if we can, if we can introduce kids young to that idea, but then bring their parents on board yeah. too, right? That's what I, I liked about what you said. That's very unique is bringing, bringing the parents on. Yeah. Yeah, because diversity, like you said, it's not just about color. It's not just about ethnicity. It's also about lack of money. It's also about lack of exposure. Mm -hmm. It's also about, you know, lack of resources um, and and things like that. And so I was thinking if we could get this camp together where we had people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds coming to talk to people, because I was one of those kids. I was raised very poor. I was on free and reduced lunch all the way through you know, uh, probably up and through junior high school until I could make enough money to pay for my own lunches. Um, and you know, my mother was a single mother raising two kids. We were latchkey kids. She didn't, couldn't afford, you know, home care for us and that kind of thing. So, um, and I don't have anybody in my family that I could have gone back to and said, Hey, I'm falling on really tough times. Can you give me a loan or can you help me out? That's, I I had to figure it out on my own. So, um, so and, and many of these students, especially first-generation students or students who come from low socioeconomic status or rural backgrounds, don't understand how to navigate sort of the financial aid right, system or right. that they can get grants that they don't have to pay back. And yeah. parents who are working two or three jobs, they don't yeah. think that they can afford to send their kids to school. Well, you're right, you can't, but there are ways that you can right. subsidize that. So yeah. I think one really important part is getting parents to buy in. Right? No, I that, think that, oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's expensive, but here's some ways that you can do it. Yeah. Um, and then having the kids just have experiences that are appropriate, age appropriate. And then yeah. it'd be it'd be great to see like a whole camp where if you go through a certain number of years and you've got, you know, um, certain like you've got you've, yeah. um, agreements with universities that say if you yeah. go through this and you have good recommendations, we'll guarantee you a spot or yeah. whatever. But that's right. Like future. that's kind of what I thought. So I started thinking about this more and more. And it, this is obviously not everyone's story, but so many people um, in vet school and beyond when they, you ask them like, you know, when did you decide you wanted to become a veterinarian? A lot of them were children. I was one of those. I was one of those. I was in elementary school Mm -hmm. and I was like, that is what I want to do. Um, now a lot of people that think they want to be a vet when they're a kid don't end up doing it for a variety of reasons. They learn what it really is. But like so many of us are like, no, this is something I've been thinking about since I was a child. Well, Mm -hmm. if you're not exposed to this as a possibility as a child, then you're already like, that's something that people choose. Like if it's never a consideration and then when you get older, you know, when you, you, you're a little bit more practical and, you know, a little, a little less like, yeah, let's just go for it. You know, cause that's the yeah. great thing about kids are like, I don't care um, right. that I'm only ever going to be five, two, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. Like don't, right, you're not exactly. going to tell a child that they're like, this is what I'm going to do. Well, but like when other kids were like, I'm going to be a, you know, a movie star, I'm going to be a professional baseball player. I was like, I'm going to be a veterinarian. Um, like that was my dream, but it's an attainable one, you know? And right. And so I think if, if that, that's always been my thought, like if we can get to the kids, because what an awesome profession we have like that. I mean, that's yeah. how I feel about it. I still am like, this is just such a cool job. And, and I've done, you know, presentations, um, you know, for, for young elementary school age kids before, and I can certainly pick out parts of my job that I'm little kids are going to like, and they do mm-hmm. like, they love yeah. it. It's awesome. Um, of it's, course. it's gross and, and it's, yeah. you know, and it's messy and it's dirty and it's active and it's not sitting behind a computer all day. Most of the time, sometimes there's more of that than we want, but, but like yeah. it's, there's a lot of really appealing things about this. And, 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 you know, I started sort 
of thinking about different things that, you know, um, kind of labs and things that you could do to get, you know, kids even more interested. And then as they get older, like give them more and more challenging things to do. And, uh, you know, I had, um, you know, in my head, the idea of like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, where they start with kids when they're really, really young. And if not all of them stick with it, you know, you know, all the way Mm -hmm. through, but those that do like, you know, boys that become an Eagle Scout, like that, I think there's scholarships that are available for them, but also you put that on a resume that means something you stuck with that. And so that was sort of the thought I had. And then you bring the parents in, um, which I guess in some ways is also kind of like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, right? Like maybe not everybody's parents are heavily involved, but they, they have to have some degree of involvement. I think, I don't know. I was never actually in the Girl Scouts or anything, but, um, (laughs) but like, you know, my, my very limited understanding of it is, you know, I, I, so I think, like you said, if you get kids that are excited when they're young, um, and you explain to parents like, hey, here are some avenues that we can actually make this a reality. Um, yeah. And, you know, this can be a really fulfilling job. Is it the best? Is it going to be the most lucrative job your, your child could go into? No, but they can do just fine. Like you, you could yeah. be very successful as a veterinarian. Now, if you compare Absolutely. it to going to med school, you can be financially probably more successful sooner in med school. But if you're choosing your career just based on that, then, yeah, maybe vet med's not for you. But this is a right. great opportunity and if we can get more people, um, you know, like you said, from, from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds as children to get excited about this and then support them through getting right. into vet school, getting through vet school successfully, Absolutely. maybe even after vet school for those that do want to go on and do other things, whether that's education or specializing mm-hmm. or who knows what it is, public health, you name it. Like, let's yeah. actually support these people all the way through. Then we can start to see real diversity in all the different facets of our profession. Because that, that's one of the things that we, we chatted about last time with um, Dr. Um, Carl and, and Brittany Southern was that, yeah. you know, not seeing people at the vet school that look like me, that, that's, you right. know, where you're not having that support. And so, um, you know, but if we can get people in early and then support them, really support them, not just in words, but like really create programs that would be supportive. Um, So I I like your idea of bringing the family, you know, the parents or, you know, the caretakers in um, to to be part of that process. I think that that would be really powerful and really important for something like that. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I think your previous um, uh, Carl and Brittany, too, talked about the idea of of having mentors and having people that mm-hmm. look like them and how important that is. And they've done studies obviously across medicine that, you know, people are more likely to be healthy if they have physicians that look like them and, yeah. and, and it, they're just, they're just more likely to go see them because they feel like there's some comfort there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other really important elements of doing something like this. I mean, it doesn't have to be all people of color sure. or LGBTQ, but it has but to, be to be a nice enough mm-hmm. mix that people can see that there are people out there that do look like me. I, I might be a, a, a black boy, but there are people out there who do this and look like yeah. me, or I might be, a, you know, an Asian woman, but there are people out there who look like me. Yeah. I might be a, a gay white woman, but I, there are people out there who look like me. Absolutely. And, do this. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. So I, I, yeah, I definitely think we need to start much younger. I agree with you on that hundred percent. We need to find ways that are, that are reaching people and supporting them in a way that they feel like it's achievable and it's yeah. not, like getting to the point where they worked really hard and then they look at the $300,000 worth of student loan debt and they're like, oh my gosh. And, you know, like, yep, or even just daunting. getting into undergraduate, yeah. even just filling out an yeah. application for FAFSA yeah. or, yep. you know, whatever, just yep. not understanding that process, um, I think can be really daunting. So I do think it's important to get get the parents involved. Well, and I think some of the immediate things, you know, you had kind of mentioned something a little bit ago and, and Carl and Brittany had sort of um, implied some of the same things. And I haven't talked about it much, but maybe I need to dig into this deeper. But this whole idea at the academic institutions that if you don't have a specialty, there's not much of a, there's not room for you here. Yeah. Um, and 
maybe that's maybe that's a barrier we need to we need to take down is that because you know there we probably i mean of the veterinarians of color how many of them don't go on to specialize for you know right. however many you know reasons they would have um, but maybe we need to reach out to some of those folks and say you know what we need to get more people of color on our faculty and mm-hmm. we're not willing to wait um, for some of these children to grow up in 20 years from now <laughs> become you know veterinarians and modelists so maybe we need to start um, expanding our, our searches and say you know what maybe maybe they um, you know we have some people who haven't gone through and done a board certified you know specialization but there's still a perspective that they have that is unique and is valuable and we need to find a way to foster that in our um, institutions because our students need that perspective and, and that's important for their education. Um, yeah. You know, that, that that has educational value to it. Um, and, and maybe that's even, I, I can remember as a student sitting in classes and, you know, being taught certain topics by the specialist. Like if you get taught cardiology by a cardiologist and you're a vet yes. student, like the they're, they're not, you know, like a lot of them aren't good at knowing what the general veterinary needs to know. And so they're so, right. they're talking so far beyond you. You're like, can I just get like a regular person to come in yeah. and explain some of this stuff to me? And some of them were very good. Like I definitely had some instructors that sure. I was like, yes, okay, you know how to explain this to me in a way that makes sense. But some, they start going off on these weird tangents. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know it's very specialized and it's probably really cool for you. Um, right. But like, I'm just trying to learn how the heart works. <laughs> like, can we, yeah, exactly. can we, you know, I'm the still ki- thinking about blood flow. Right. <laughs> like renal physiology is complicated enough. Like let's, can we dumb it down just a smidgen right. for me? Um, and so, you know, I think there is, educational value in having people who aren't specialists actually come in and tell the specialist maybe, uh, no, (laughs) that's, that's not working. Um, you know, and then combine that with some education specialists, whether they're veterinarians or not, but education people to come in and say, okay, here's what we need. Like, again, that's more of that diversity of thought too, but if we can do that and increase, you know, racial and ethnic diversity at the same time, like that's amazing. Cause when we're pulling from a much bigger pool of people, um, then I think we can do that in a meaningful way, like more immediately. Yeah, and I think it would help to reach out to those GPs who have yeah. some experience in the in the field that you know maybe don't look like the typical white woman yeah. in, in practice because they they do have experiences and there are that's not to say there aren't people of color who are out there in specialty practice but there just are a lot fewer of them right. and I see right. I do see like so Lincoln Memorial is a as a you know has the distributive model of education mm-hmm. and I do see on our faculty for example we are not as heavily invested in those board certified folks. Right. We have people who have lots of experience, who have lots of interests. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do have PhDs in certain areas, but they're not necessarily all board certified. And we have the luxury of being able to do that because we don't have a referral hospital, right. which in many ways, I mean, it has its own challenges, but sure. in many ways frees us up to not have to be quite so focused on having those folks who have that kind of practice. So I right. think as we see these new vet schools that open with that distributive model, you may see more and more opportunities for, for folks who don't necessarily, I never was interested in specialty practice. Right. I mean, there are like, I thought I was going to be a zoo vet. That was probably the only specialty practice I would have gone in, but I would have yeah. done it really reluctantly because I didn't want to have to go through all this extra right. training and take a test yeah. to say, yes, I know what I'm doing. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't have something to contribute right. at the academic level, just like there's all these other general practitioners out there. It doesn't mean they don't have something to contribute. So I, I definitely see the value of having specialty folks oh, in for sure. a, a yeah. teaching hospital. I'm not getting rid of all of them, things. but yeah, no, absolutely not. But I think <laughs> I'm one of them, be, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, w- I want to keep my job, but you know, yeah, but of course, I, but of course. we, and there's value. In that, absolutely. But, But it's a very unique perspective as well. Like, right, Mm -hmm. that's a very narrow perspective that I now have. An important one. I think, you know, my perspective is important. But um, but again, I can't 
I can't see my own blind spots by definition. Right. So <laughs> like we need to make sure that we think about diversity in all different forms. And, um, and you know, when we create these things like, nope, this is what this is what this looks like. This is what the job looks like. The only people who can teach orthopedic surgery are somebody, you know, is an orthopedic surgeon. It's like, really? Because right. there's a lot of practitioners yeah. who are doing a lot of this stuff, you know? And right. like maybe there are right. certain parts of it that we need an orthopedic surgeon for, but does all of it need to be taught by an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, I would argue I think- it doesn't. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I did plenty of orthopedic surgery as yep. a general practitioner. Yep. I can't tell you how many hind legs I amputated and right. didn't have to refer to an orthopedic surgeon. Now, but even I mean, just I like what... lameness workups, like, sure. you know, general practitioners yeah. are doing a ton of those. Of and, course. and so like I, I need, you know, when my students graduate, I need them to know how to be a general practitioner if that's what they're going to do. Right. I don't need them to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so, um, I don't, I'm, I don't know why I'm picking on orthopedic surgeons, but if they're <laughs> easy to pick on, you know, that's why yeah. <laughs> it, it could have been anything name, you know, how many, you know, GPs have to do a lot of cardiology. You don't have to be a cardiologist to do any cardiology. There's, you know, obviously some specialized things. And and again, I'm grateful that we have all these specialists who want to do these things. Um, We need them for sure. But we don't need just them. Right. I think that's the key. And I think there's also some inherent sort of hierarchical bias within the veterinary profession too, right? Like there are a very small number percentage of veterinarians who are actually board certified and or residency trained. But when you are in a vet school and you're a student that's all you get. And so yeah. you feel like you're somehow a failure because quote unquote, you're only a veteran, like a general yeah. practitioner. Oh, I, I, and it's like, yeah. no, it's still really hard to be a general I, practitioner. So this is what I tell when students, when we, you know, sometimes when like they come on to clinics and I have them, okay, what do you guys want to do? Especially when they're getting close to graduating. All right. What are you guys going to do after? Just so I know what their background and interests sure. are. And it's like, oh, I'm just going into general practice. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. You don't say just like that is so much, in my opinion, like that's harder. <laughs> like you, it's you really have to be hard. a specialist in all of the things because you're going to have clients that are going to come to you and they're going to have all of these problems in one patient. And you're going to be like, Hey, I think we should refer you. And they'll be like, Nope. So guess what? Right. You're now the specialist. And so you right. have to be good at all of those things. Um, yeah, you know, you don't get to be the cardiologist, yeah. you get to be the cardiologist, the internist, yeah. the dermatologist. The you dentist, don't have the, the luxury <laughs> of saying, I don't do that anymore. Like that's right. what specialists get to do now. Be like, Oh, I don't do that. You're going to have to go down the hall and talk to my colleague who does eye stuff because because I think right. eyeballs are gross and I don't do that anymore. You don't right, get to right. do that, you know? So, exactly. so please stop saying just general practice because yep. that is, that's not what that implies in any way, shape or form. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I harp on students about that one. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I actually, you know, I, I mean, I chose to go into specialty practice after a lot of debate actually um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I really did consider general practice because I liked that I got to do a little bit of everything, which is probably why mm-hmm. I went into emergency critical care because I still yeah. get to do a little bit of a lot of things, not everything, but, um, you know, and maybe not to that degree um, because I, I didn't want to have to choose just one thing. Um, right. But, um, and, and it's funny because one of the reasons that I, um, that kind of influenced my decision to go on and do a residency was actually that I wanted to teach. Um, by the time I Aww. got through an internship that I was like, I actually really like this part of the job. I thought that was really fun, particularly in the emergency setting because, you know, a lot of students would come on and be really apprehensive about it. I was like, no, 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 this is going to be great. Um, and you know, sometimes they would come back and be like, that was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, win, <laughs> that was a win for me, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, um, so, you know, but that was for me, the only path I saw to, you know, to right. teaching, right. was to specialize. That's not the only reason, but it, it definitely influenced my decision. Um, and so, yeah, w- I know we've chatted about this other times, you know, in the past too, about creating, um, 
you know, academic veterinarians who you have to have these advanced degrees or advanced training in education in order to teach. Because yeah. um, if that had been available, that might have been something I would have considered. Or if I, not that it wasn't available, but like you sort of had to create that yourself, right? Right. Um, it wasn't even yeah. on my radar as a, as a thing. Um, so now, hopefully, you know, we can start pushing that for people too and give them other opportunities um, to be like, hey, I want to teach. Um, I don't yeah. necessarily want to specialize in this part of. Uh, specific subset of veterinary medicine, my subset is education. Um, that right. would be really fun. Well, I'm also just really stubborn because I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You tell me I have to do this to teach at a vet school, but I'm not doing this. I'm nope. going to find my own path. So I'm, I'm yeah. a very stubborn person. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but wonderful. I love that you, I love that you help students understand that they can't qualify their general practice no. experiences just because yeah. I think that's really, really important. They need yeah. to realize how valuable yeah. and important they are. And that yeah. the majority of veterinarians are quote unquote just yeah, exactly. like GPs. Yeah. I think that's really important, but I just wanted to share a funny story with you because yeah. you're an emergency critical care. And, um, my emergency clinician when I was in vet school was so funny because she would come in to to do her lectures for internal med or for small animal medicine. And I remember very clearly the day she came in, she's like, yeah, I don't understand you general practitioners going and doing surgery on perfectly healthy pets. That seems like a really bad idea. She's like, I love being in emergency care because when they come in and their owner expects them to die, I'm a hero if they live. And if they die, it's fine because they expected it anyway. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's like, that's brilliant. <laughs> when I teach students about like CPR, I'm like, CPR is the least stressful thing I do, right? Like the patient has already died. How does it yeah. get worse? How does it get worse? Like, <laughs> the only way this gets worse is if I bring them back and then they can die a second time. But like, right. so like, I want you guys to think. And so they're like, oh, I hadn't really thought of it that way. It's like, yeah, yeah, the worst thing that could happen has already happened. Why are you stressing now? Exactly. <laughs> you should have been exactly. stressed five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think but, it takes, yeah. it takes a certain bit of um, either cynicism or just a little, you got to be a little messed up in the head to want to do emergency critical care. No, no. I, I actually <laughs> did a little bit of emergency when I first graduated and I, I loved emergency. Oh, I just yeah. couldn't do the hours the overnight that's and fair. I just didn't get along. But yeah, yeah, no, I that's fair. It, so. No, I it's, 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 just thought that was brilliant. It is. It's a good story. We all kind of have, I think a lot of us have that sort of that take on things to be like, uh, nope, nope. I don't, I don't want it. Yeah. I don't want to take something that's not broken and break it. Yeah. <laughs> you give it to me broken and if I can fix it, woo. But if not, uh, but you know, it was broken. So what do you want me to do? Uh, <laughs> um, well, um, on that note, we'll probably, we'll probably leave it there for now. But, um, I, it was so really nice to chat with you about this and I, I really appreciate you sharing, um, you know, your personal story. And I know that that's not always easy to do. And, um, and, and, you know, thank you for all that you've done in, in the profession and, you know, paving the way for, for me personally, some of us that, you know, have gotten into the education game relatively late. Uh, you know, it's people like you that said, I'm stubborn and I'm not going to do it your way. And, um, <laughs> and, and we are starting to see some of those changes. And, and then also just, you know, um, you know, sharing your stories of being a person, uh, you know, an Asian American woman and, and what impact that's had on you. And, and I'm really excited that we're, we're getting to forward this conversation more and more. And, um, and so hopefully we'll, we'll keep that going and, and maybe you'll, you'll come back to the podcast sometime and we can, we can chat more about, um, some of the programs we can do with kids. Yeah, that would be great. And I really appreciate you, um, having the willingness to engage in the conversation and be open to that. Cause I think that's, you know, that's the beginning of, of real change. So thank you for having me and thank you for being open to, to the conversation. Absolutely. We're not done. That's what I keep saying at these, we're, we're going to keep this going. It's not going to fizzle out in, in a few days, months, weeks, years, we're going to keep this going. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, it sounds like we have lots of conversations about potential grants. So yeah. you're going to have, you're going to have to put up with me for a while. I love it. Yep. It's happening. <laughs> it's it's right. good stuff. All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to today's show. I'd like to thank Topher, my producer. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Vet Journal Club. Our website is veterinaryjournalclub.fireside.fm. Email us with questions, comments, or show ideas at veterinaryjournalclub at gmail.com. And remember to check back weekly for new episodes, and we'll catch you next time.